Hey, faithful listener. Welcome to season six of the Bible Explained podcast, the podcast where the Bible gets explained. So grab your cup of coffee and enjoy today's discussion from the book of John. Hi, hello, howdy, and good morning, faithful listeners. I hope you had a fantastic long weekend. I am very sorry, actually, about yesterday. Once again, as usual, I totally forgot to wish everybody a happy holiday. I always forget the holidays. Like I recently forgot Mother's Day and totally forgot to wish all the moms a happy Mother's Day. Yesterday, I forgot to wish you all a happy Memorial Day. And I do this very consistently. I always forget holidays. So I want to say I'm sorry. Happy Memorial, happy belated Memorial Day to everybody out there. But if you're similar to me and you often forget holidays that are coming up, if you forget your own birthday, because I also did this year, (laughs) then uh, contact me and tell me if you also forget holidays that are coming up so that I know and then I get encouraged that I'm not the only crazy person out there. So anyway, sorry about that. Happy belated Memorial Day. I really hope that you had a fantastic day. It was so sunny and so beautiful where I lived It's starting to finally warm up. It's in the low 70s now where I'm at, and I can finally, finally plant my garden. Usually Memorial Day is when this area, my area, is able to start planting. And so as of today, I'm able to go out in the garden and start planting my little seedlings. Though I need some more jalapeno peppers. If you guys know me, I love my jalapenos. I love my spicy peppers. And that is primarily what I focus on when I do my garden is spicy peppers. So I have some cayenne, but I definitely need to go find some jalapeno pepper plants very soon here. All right, so let's actually read the Bible today instead of me rambling about peppers and the weather. Today we're going to read John chapter 17 and we're going to finish up this chapter. I'm going to be reading verses 20 through 26 today out of the W.E.B. version. And this is the portion of scripture where Jesus broadens his prayer and prays for every believer that is about to believe in him. So that includes you and that includes me also. So go grab your Bible, your cup of coffee or your cup of tea and let's go ahead and enjoy reading John 17, 20 through 26 together. Not for these only do I pray, but for those also who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world." Righteous Father, the world hasn't known you, but I knew you, and these knew that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and will make it known, that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So to do a little recap about this prayer from John 17, Jesus was walking along with his disciples, and he was about to be betrayed. As we're going to find out in the next couple chapters, Jesus is literally about to go to the cross. He had just finished the Last Supper with his disciples. So now he's walking along with them and he begins this prayer, this beautiful prayer, where he starts off by saying, 
God, may I bring you glory and let me be glorified through you. So that's the first part of the prayer. The second part is he begins to pray for his 11 disciples. He says, you know, God, let them be unified. Let them stand strong in me. I don't want to take them out of the world because they need to be in the world so that they can spread the gospel. And now today we're talking about the last portion of this prayer where Jesus literally broadens it to include every single person who will be a Christian ever, basically. So he says, not only for these do I pray. So in other words, his 11 disciples, because don't forget, Judas wasn't included in this prayer exactly. He was kind of included as the son of perdition, I think is what Jesus called him. Um, The son of destruction, I'm sorry. So he included Judas in the prayer as, you know, the son of destruction has left. But I pray for the 11 disciples. So anyway, Judas wasn't really included in the prayer. So Jesus says, not only for the 11 disciples do I pray, but for those also who will believe in me through their word. So you and I, because of the testimony of the disciples, have the New Testament. And we have the scripture. And so through the disciples that Jesus made, the entire world basically has the Bible and has Christianity. So technically you and I have come to faith in Jesus through the witness of the disciples who testified about Jesus and wrote all of his words down. That's why we have the gospel is because of the disciples. So going back to verse 21 or verse 20, I'm sorry, not for these only do I pray, but for those also who will believe in me through their word, through the 11 disciples word, that they may all be one, even as you father are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. This is a very, very important verse to any Christian listening to this. We are supposed to be unified. And unity is so important that not only does Jesus mention it here and actually prays for it, not just for his 11 disciples, but for the entire Christian body to be unified, but also later on in the New Testament is mentioned multiple, multiple times. For example, let me pull up Romans 14 and I'm going to read the first verse out of the NIV version. And this was written by Paul. It says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. That is the very first verse of Romans 14. And what Paul is talking about here is that when newer Christians or or even Christians who aren't new Christians that have a weaker faith want to be included in the body of Christ, it says Christians with a stronger faith are supposed to accept them. And not just accept them, but not quarrel with them over disputable matters. It depends on what version you read out of, but sometimes it'll say, don't argue with them over what they think is right or wrong. Uh, Don't argue over silly matters, something like that. But the point of this is that Christians aren't supposed to argue with each other too much. Now, of course, if there's bad ideology happening, of course, we are supposed to remove the bad ideology and help the Christians that are weaker in faith go back onto the right path. So don't get me wrong and don't get scripture wrong. This is not saying that we have to tolerate bad ideology in churches. But when it comes to disputable matters, like things that just don't really matter that much, we shouldn't be 
arguing with each other, quarreling with each other over those little things. And I mean, if you look at like the church in general, like all the different denominations, a lot of them broke off from the main church because of disputable matters. Like, for example, how communion should be taken, you know, whether wine or grape juice should be used or something like that. And to me, those are very disputable matters. You know, they're not worth arguing over, but yet the the church has seen so many splits because of disputable matters. And this is very important that the church remains unified, not just for the church itself, but for everybody that is outside of the Christian faith looking in. When churches have silly splits and silly arguments, that looks bad to the outside person. Because the outside person expects Christians to be able to have some amount of unity because we're all unified in Christ. And so when the outside person sees the church like quarreling over stupid matters, they're probably like, man, like, why would I even go to church? I can argue with uh, any random person over the same stupid matters. So that is why the church has to be unified. There's another verse in scripture. I think Jesus talks about this where a house divided against itself cannot stand. So if the church is constantly doing splits and dividing themselves and there's a lot of infighting going on, that church is not going to be able to stand for very long. So that's why it's so important that the church has unity because we're all the body of Christ. But going back to Romans 14, Paul mentions that we shouldn't be quarreling over disputable matters. And going back to my earlier point where I said this doesn't mean like bad theology, a lot of people will twist verses like this and be like, you know, the church needs to be welcoming to every single faith and every single, uh, you know, belief and ideology. And we need to accept them with open arms and never say anything bad against them because that's called tolerance. And Jesus and Paul tells us that we need to be tolerant. But that is not true. There is nothing in scripture that says that We need to be tolerant. In fact, there is a verse in Revelation where God is actually condemning one of the churches because they were tolerant to bad ideology. And God says, if you don't remove this tolerance that you're having for all this bad stuff that's going on in the church, I'm going to destroy you. That's what Jesus actually says to that church. So look at it a different way. Also from the outside person looking in perspective. If an outside person looking in sees a church, you know, just accepting everybody, welcoming everybody, that might be enjoyable to the outsider for the time being. But why would they continue to go to church if they're not having any amount of personal growth? Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is literally the spirit of truth that goes and convicts people of their sin. The church is doing a terrible job, not not just a terrible job, but a damning job when they don't convict people of sin, when they don't allow the Holy Spirit rather to convict people of sin. So churches that are super progressive and, you know, open their arms to every single ideology ever, Those churches are actually doing so much harm because they're not allowing the spirit to work and they are allowing everybody that comes into their church 
to continue to live in sin and to continue to go down the pathway that literally leads to hell. This is why the church needs to be truthful and it needs to be unified in that truth. And here's what Jesus says, going back to John 17 in verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you father are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. The point of the church is to show the world that Jesus is truth, that he is part of the Father and he is part of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. The church needs to be unified on all fronts, not just with, you know, silly matters like whether wine or grape juice should be used in service, but also on way broader stuff like core beliefs of Christianity. So then in verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. There we go again. I mean, how many times has Jesus already mentioned in this short prayer that the church needs to be unified as one? Then in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the father loves the world. Jesus has mentioned this multiple times now, right here, where he literally says the father loved the world. And also in John three sixteen, the most famous scripture ever, basically. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. So the father loves the world. So not only should the church be unified completely in truth, but the church needs to be unified also in love because the father loved the world. The church also needs to love the world. This means being encouraging where the church should be encouraging. This means being kind and friendly toward anybody new that walks into the church. And unfortunately, the church also is not very good at that. The church is really, really good a lot of times at being super critical of people, but not very good at being friendly towards people. I am very thankful to go to the church that I go to because my church is considered to be a very friendly church to the point where some people <laughs> decided that they don't want to attend our church because they thought it was a cult because of how friendly it really was. And I just laugh at that because my church, I, I've been in cult-like churches. I grew up in one and my church now is definitely not a cult. And so, <laughs> and you guys are probably like, well, that's what a cultist would say. <laughs> um, but anyway, no, my friend, my church is very friendly. And it's unfortunate that too many people have gone to such unfriendly churches that when they come to my church, they think it's a cult. But that's just how a church is supposed to be. Churches are supposed to be extremely inviting extremely friendly and encouraging towards people who want to come in the door. However, however, <laughs> there's a caveat there. It can't just be tolerant and accepting. So churches, I feel like, often are one or the other. There's not a lot of churches that are a mixture of both. And I'm so thankful to go to a church that is a mixture of both friendly and accommodating, but also truth-telling. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying my church is perfect. Every church has its issues 
and its problems. But I am thankful to be going to a church that tries to balance those two very well. But that's what a church is supposed to be. I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus was very friendly. (laughs) He was very encouraging towards people. He was very loving towards people. But when it came time for Jesus to, you know, tell people that they were doing something wrong, he did that. I mean, what did he say to that adulterous woman? He said, go and sin no more. What did he say to the man who he healed his legs at the pool? When he met him again, he said, look, I healed you, but stop sinning because something worse might end up happening to you if you don't stop. So, I mean, Jesus was definitely both kind and truthful. And that's how the church is supposed to be. It can't be one or the other. So moving on to verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So actually, we kind of already touched on this point a little bit, where the church is supposed to reflect Jesus. The church is first and foremost, above anything else, supposed to be the reflection of Jesus, the body of Christ. And of course, if the church is correctly, I guess, being the body of Christ, Jesus will be with that church, if that makes sense. I desire that they will be with me where I am, that they may see my glory, which you have given me. So, I mean, right there, the church is supposed to show God's glory, reflect God's glory, and bring glory to God above all else. That is the point of the church. That is literally the purpose of the church is to shine the light to a dark world, to give a dark world a place of comfort, a place of hope. It needs that light that only Jesus can provide. Righteous Father, the world hasn't known you, but I knew you and these knew that you sent me. I made known to them your name and will make it known that the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus is in each and every Christian. Now, this does not mean that we are Jesus. This does not mean that we are God. This just means that the Holy Spirit has chosen to make his home in anybody who chooses to believe in Jesus as their personal savior. So the Holy Spirit lives in us. And when we have the Holy Spirit, we have freedom. It's so freeing, in a sense, to be a Christian, because Christians have true hope. Christians have true joy. And there's even a verse in scripture that says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And it's so true. I've never felt more free than when I invited the Holy Spirit in and when I became a Christian that that truly began living for Christ. I experienced so much freedom. And of course, when I did that, it it was very embarrassing at first because I had a lot of shame from my past sins and I had to bring those sins out into the light. And I'm, I'm not even joking. When I first did that, it was super embarrassing because I had to tell my husband some of the sexual sins that I was dealing with, some of the uh, uh, homosexual sins that I had had in the past. And I kept those all hidden from everybody, you know? And finally, when I mentioned it to my husband, he was just so forgiving and so loving. 
You know, it was just, it was so freeing. And now I can talk about it. <laughs> like if anybody asks me, yeah, I struggled with that and I'll talk about it. And I'm so thankful that God freed me from that because that was weighing me down. That darkness, those sins, that shame, that was weighing me down so, so much. And finally, when I brought it out in the open, finally, when I aired it out, when I shined the light on it, it was uncomfortable to start. And it I'm not going to say it was easy. It was not easy to shine light on those sins that I had. But now I can talk about them and I, I don't feel any shame from that because God has freed me from that. The Holy Spirit has freed me and there is freedom when you allow the Holy Spirit to come in. And yes, shame is terrible. Shame is embarrassing. But when you experience God's love and when you experience truth and when you experience the light and freedom that Jesus gives you, that shame, it just disappears. And it's the most freeing thing ever. And so this is what the church is supposed to be encouraging people to do. Encouraging people that yes, they might feel shame over some of the stuff that they used to do in the past or some of the things that they're still still currently involved in. But that shame is not going to kill you, A. And B, it's actually good for you and insanely freeing when you just finally shine light on it. That's what the church is supposed to do. That is what Jesus did. That is what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts people of their sins. And so that is what the church and all Christians are supposed to be unified in. Faithful listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you know somebody that's struggling with shame or guilt or anything like that, then share this episode with them or direct them over to my devotional Out of the Mire, which talks about a lot of those issues that people struggle with, shame and guilt and fear. But also I have a really exciting announcement for those of you who don't follow me on Facebook. Tisk tisk tisk. My devotional Out of the Mire is soon going to be available on Uversion. So that's my exciting announcement. But of course, you can check it out because it's available on Amazon. But friends and faithful listeners, I hope to see you tomorrow for an episode out of Joshua. Until then, happy listening and God bless.